What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Let's Talk Knicks podcast. I'm sorry it's so late in the day, but better late than never. So, for those who don't know me, my name is Maxwell Ogden, and I am the site expert over at Daily Knicks on the Fansided Network. Please give us a follow on Twitter over at Daily Knicks FS. You can also follow me at Maxwell Ogden, and of course, you can follow this podcast at Talk NYK Podcast. Now, The New York Knicks did yesterday what everyone was kind of waiting for them to do. They entered the fourth quarter with a slim lead. They had a tough third quarter, which seems like a trademark of the team. And they won. And as is usually the case, when you rip that proverbial monkey off of your back, you find yourself in the same set of circumstances as what is the cause of your issues, your inconsistency, however you want to phrase it. The New York Knicks found themselves in a similar position. The New York Knicks found themselves staring down another disappointing end to a game that was clearly winnable. Despite entering the second half leading by 10 points, the New York Knicks entered the fourth quarter leading by just two. And that's what leaves us here today talking about one important thing, and that is if you give up on this process, you're giving up on the Knicks. What I mean by that is this. The New York Knicks did not put that game away yesterday because the Brooklyn Nets got sloppy. The New York Nets, the New York Knicks put that game away yesterday because they came together, they played through their long-term pieces, and they won. It wasn't Jarrett Jack who put up 20-plus points or a triple-double again. It was Frank Nielikna who kind of took over that fourth quarter. And Michael Beasley, all credit to him, great fourth quarter. Outstanding scoring performance, 16 of his 23 points in the fourth. But let's not overlook the other guys who made that win possible. Kristaps Porzingis, an outstanding game from start to finish. Doug McDermott was huge on both ends of the floor. Frank Nielikina had his best game as a pro. And Ron Baker, quietly, had an outstanding performance. He was a plus 16 in the box score. And more importantly, his defense helped keep Brooklyn from really getting anything going. You know, Karis LeVert had a pretty solid game, 20.7 rebounds, but even he was 8 of 20 from the field. You look at it, the reason the New York Knicks won that game yesterday is, number one, they took care of the ball. They only committed nine turnovers. Number two, they moved the ball. They had 27 assists to those nine turnovers. That's an assist-to-turnover ratio of an even three, and every single team in the NBA would love to have that assist-to-turnover ratio. Now, yeah, shooting 26 of 37 at the free-throw line isn't ideal. It's only 70%, but getting 37 free-throw attempts is a great way to win a game because even though you're 26 of 37, you still made 26 free-throws. Now, yeah, Nets made 11 threes, only shot 34%. Knicks made nine threes. Didn't attempt a lot, but they made them when they needed to. That ultimately won the game. Ball movement, taking care of the ball, and a commitment to defense. Those are three traits that will at least keep you in every single game you play. If you move the ball, if you don't commit turnovers, and you play hard on defense... Home or away, elite opponent, bad opponent, you will be in every single game that you play. And yesterday what happened was the New York Knicks played zero players more than 30 minutes. The New York Knicks really didn't ask anybody to go ISO more than they needed to. They played as a team on both ends of the floor. 
They were responsible. They were committed. And even though that third quarter was ugly, I mean, look, it was a 39-31 to 31 third quarter that Brooklyn won. But let's be honest, it wasn't because anything really other than fouls. 26 fouls between those two teams in the third quarter alone. I mean, you're not going to see that very often. The refs were calling the whistle on everything that both teams were doing. It was ugly. But the point of this podcast, again, is this is why you don't give up on players. This is why you let seasons play out. And I don't hold it against Knicks fans because, let's be honest, the New York Knicks have not executed a long-term rebuild since about 1985. Not since they were getting Patrick Ewing and Mark Jackson and Rod Strickland and all these young guys have the New York Knicks really executed an actual rebuild. Because even getting Amari Stoudemire to lead those young players, which was a good move in retrospect because it did lead to the Knicks having enough legitimacy to convince Carmelo Anthony and Tyson Chandler and guys like that, yeah, this is the place to be. But not the point. Fact is, New York Knicks have not had a real long-term rebuild where they actually draft players and don't just trade away draft picks for, well, veterans in about 30 years. So I, I understand why Knicks fans aren't really sure how to process what's happening because unless you were consciously watching basketball in the 1980s, you don't really know what this is like from a first-hand perspective. And the most recent and most heavily publicized example of a team rebuilding happened to be those Philadelphia 76ers teams that just said, screw it, we're going to be terrible for three straight years, throw caution to the wind, we don't care what anybody says, we'll be terrible and we'll get all these assets. Look, all due respect to Sam Hinkie, who isn't dumb, okay, he's a smart basketball mind, he did unearth some nice players who were not in those top five pick ranges, including Robert Covington and TJ McConnell. He deserves a lot of credit for that. But rebuilding in that way, it's hard to watch and it's tough to stomach. And I know that fans are saying, trust the process, trust the process, but that's almost like a coping mechanism. With the New York Knicks and with most rebuilding teams, you can trust the process because the whole point of it is you actually have those players out there taking those bumps and bruises, learning from experience, and even if they lose those close games, you trust that, look, if the coaching staff keeps trusting these players, eventually they're going to get it right. And what we saw yesterday was the young players doing exactly that. Michael Beasley deserves a game ball, and I'm not excluding him, but the four players who I'm highlighting right now that absolutely deserve game balls are all members, or at least potentially members, of this long-term rebuild. Chris Ops Porzingis. Almost everything was going for him. Take away those two early free throw misses and some meaningless miss shots at the end where it just seemed like he was trying to get his 30 points and 10 rebounds. Almost flawless performance. 26 points, 9 rebounds, 2 blocks in just 27 minutes. And let's be honest, about three of those minutes, he shouldn't have even been on the floor. But I get it. Let your franchise player get those numbers. Doesn't work out sometimes. Yeah, take him off already. But KP, just aside from that dumb foul at the end of the third quarter, in the, around the middle of the third quarter, everything he was doing was working. Defensively, the Nets didn't even want to drive the lane because they knew that he was there waiting. Offensively, KP was... Letting the offense come to him. The offense is built around him. What that means is there's a difference between building through a player. Like the Cleveland Cavaliers are building through LeBron James. 
So everyone on that team is on that team because of how they fit with LeBron James. And that makes sense in theory because it is LeBron James and he is your franchise player. But the idea is if you build around a player and you build around their strengths, you're still able to highlight the strengths of other players as opposed to everybody else around that player is just kind of a product of them and they can't really do their own thing. What KP is learning, and he talked about this, is the fact that, yeah, in the fourth quarter in a close game, you're going to have to go ISO. You're going to have to force the issue. You're going to have to prove that you can get those buckets. And he's had some trouble with that, but he's also shown flashes of being able to do that. So to only look at the bad and ignore the good is kind of irrational. But the reality is games like yesterday where he focuses more on defense, where he focuses more on rebounding, He makes a significant impact on the game when he does that, and that makes it easier for him to play within the flow of the offense and just take the shots that come to him. There's always going to be space for players, no matter how good they are. At some point, you're going to get some favorable looks that you're confident that you can knock down, and you take them, and usually they're going to go in when you're as good as a guy like KP is. And on the flip side, when you play that way on offense, you expend less energy on offense, you have more energy to go rebound and go play defense and close out on shooters and all of that stuff. And that works out better for you too. So the way KP played yesterday is pretty much how he needs to play moving forward. Because, you know, I've written this, I've said this, everybody's looking at Dirk Nowitzki and saying he could be Dirk Nowitzki. He could be that guy who's putting up 25 to 30 points per game and all this. To me... The best thing for Christoph Porzingis to be is Tim Duncan. Pace your team through games. Play outstanding defense, whether or not you get the credit for it, which Duncan, you know, he got some credit, but the fact he never won Defensive Player of the Year is kind of a sham. But, you know, play hard on defense. And in KP's case, he will get the credit for it. He leads the league in blocks per game. He leads the league in opponent field goal percentage at the rim. In other words, according to the statistics, Kristaps Porzingis is the single best rim protector in the NBA, and he's 22 years old. Think about that. Now, yesterday he showed, when you let the offense come to you and you don't force the issue unless your team really needs a bucket, you can focus more on rebounding. You can focus more on protecting the rim. You can focus even more on closing out on those shooters that you're having trouble closing out on sometimes. And then on the other end of the floor, when you let it just come to you and you let your teammates help you and you let the system help you, you have the kind of game that he had yesterday. 26 points in 27 minutes, 8 of 14 from the field. Getting to the free throw line at virtual will. And one of the guys who made that possible was Frank Nielikina. Frank did a lot of his damage with KP off of the floor, which is what made this even more impressive. But come the fourth quarter, when the Knicks entered with a two-point lead and the Nets entered with full control of the momentum of the game, early on it looked like the Nets were about to take over this game because the Knicks were having to trade buckets with them because the Nets were just kind of obliterating that Knicks second unit and it was just, oh, here we go again. And then Frank Nielikina really locked down, as he did all night, and he held Spencer Dinwiddie, who's a prime candidate for most improved player, to 2 of 14 shooting, or at least he helped do so. I won't just say him. His defense was as superb as it always is, but 
10 points, 10 assists, 7 rebounds, 2 blocks, a steal, buried two 3-point field goals, both of which came at key moments of the game. I mean, Frank Nielikna is playing with confidence. That 3 he made in the 4th quarter, that was not just some spot-up 3 or regular pull-up 3. That was dribbling up the court, dribble through your legs, pull-up buckets. That's the kind of confidence that he's gaining. And that's what people need to realize. Look, he's not going to be an overnight sensation, but this kid has talent. He's not just a potential lockdown defender. He's proven that he can work that pick and roll in a unique way, in that European way that American defenders often aren't equipped to defend because they do it so differently. It's not just the pocket passes and all this stuff. It's the European game runs that seemingly omnipresent play in just different ways. The bigs are used differently. Not only as guys who dive to the basket, but shooters. They fade to horizontally and vertically. They Look, watch the Knicks play. Watch the way that Frank runs the pick and roll with KP. Watch the way he even runs the pick and roll with Kylo Quinn, who doesn't really have the same shooting range. That's a strength that he can use long term. The thing about Frank is he's not just a passer. He is more than capable of scoring at a high level. His long jumpers, you know, there are games where they're just falling for him. And he's taking them in rhythm. And he's pulling up off the bounce. And he's doing all this stuff that you want him to do. And then, you know, the next game he's not doing that. And that's what's frustrating. But I think what we need to slow down and realize is this is a 19-year-old kid playing at the NBA level for the first time in his career. Not only that, but receiving strength and conditioning training for the first time in his career. Yesterday, when he took that hard foul going to the rim, I believe it was Jared Allen who fouled him. That was a great play. He went in hard. He kept the ball up high. He jumped, had both hands on the ball, and when he got blocked at the rim, he went up so strong that you had to foul him. Those are the kind of plays that he can make on a consistent basis. The key is going to be let him develop because he has the confidence. When he's playing with confidence, he plays. I'm not going to throw that star word around, but when you have a guy who has really kind of consistently shown this season that even if he doesn't do much for the first three quarters, he tends to show up in the fourth. When he's given the opportunity to play the fourth quarter, Frank Nelikina generally steps up and hits some big shots. That's a tough trait to find. And that is why, to me, look, if you're telling me all we have, quote-unquote, all we have, and Frank Nelikina is a guy who can play lockdown defense and step up and hit big shots in the fourth quarter, I'm saying sign me the hell up. That's the kind of guy that every single team in the NBA would love to have. Because you don't have a lot of people who play lockdown defense who can also hit big shots in the fourth quarter. That's just a fact. So if he's one of them, and he's also a willing passer and a good teammate, sign me up. Now, another guy that we have to talk about is Ron Baker. Ron Baker gets a lot of flack, understandably. Because he's like Lance Thomas. He doesn't really show up in the box score doing anything. So everyone just assumes, because he doesn't get a lot of points, rebounds, or assists, that he's not really doing anything. Mind you, Frank Frank Nelikin isn't the only ball hawk on this team. He isn't the only high-level defender on this team. What Ron Baker has been doing quietly this season 
is establishing himself as a guy who can situationally lock players down on defense. He's averaging more than two and a half steals per 36 minutes. He's playing 15 minutes a game and still averaging over a steal per night. Yesterday, five points, four rebounds, an assist, and three steals. He hit that huge three-point field goal in the fourth that just kind of set the wheels in motion. His defense was outstanding. He was everywhere. It's not just playing the passing lanes either. You have a lot of guys who know how to play the passing lanes. Ron Baker gets into your jersey, smothers you defensively, and rips that ball away from you. I'm not saying Ron Baker is going to be a guy who one day is averaging 37 minutes a night playing the fourth quarter in the NBA Finals. I'm not predicting his future. I'm simply saying when you have a guy who's willing to get after it on the defensive end of the floor, not just a capable defender, not just a guy who can get steals every now and then, but a guy who's going to compete on defense every single possession that he's on the floor, those are valuable players, not only to trying to win games in the short term, but to the culture that you're trying to build in the long term. Because the idea is you want every single one of the players on your roster to be the kind of player who locks in on defense for 48 minutes. That's where you're trying to get. And if you get to that point, does Ron Baker still have this appeal? I'm not sure. I can't answer that question. All I know is he's the kind of player who can get you there. He's the kind of player who can hold other players accountable because if he's going out there and he's busting his ass like that, what's your excuse? And yesterday was a shining example of that. And also, Ron Baker has a little Langston Galloway in him in the sense that, yeah, Langston Galloway never really shot especially well percentage-wise, but we all remember, the guy had a knack for hitting big shots. Ron Baker's kind of shown that a bit. He showed that back at Wichita State. He showed it in brief flashes in the NBA as well. That backcourt of Baker and Nelikna, we've been saying all year, you can act like you have short-term memory if you want, but we've all been saying all year, Twitter everywhere, when Baker and Nelikna are on the floor, that backcourt plays some outstanding on-ball defense. And speaking of surprising defense, how about Doug McDermott? Now, obviously, we're going to look at the fact that he had 13 points, four rebounds, and an assist. We're going to look at the fact that he made two threes. We're going to look at the fact he got to the free throw line for six attempts and made five of them, that he was a plus 13. But what Doug McDermott has done this year is completely rewrite the expectations for his career. He's not only exceeded the expectations of what we thought we were going to get from him, but he's proven to be a completely different player. Now, we all knew he could shoot. Career 39.8% three-point shooter. Might as well be a career 40% three-point shooter. We know he could shoot. He's been able to shoot since college. He shot well in the NBA. Efficiency as a scorer has never really been the issue for him. The issue has been defense, and the issue has been what can you do besides shooting the three-ball. Well, he's answered those questions. McDermott's not a great on-ball defender. We all know that. But what he's establishing himself as is a player who, as a team defender, is willing to hustle, is willing to put that extra work in, and is willing to just chase his man around the floor for as long as he's on the court. McDermott might get beat one-on-one, but it's become a very rare thing for him to be completely out of position and let his man get an open shot. He can be a little overzealous, and that can happen, yes, but it's not for a lack of trying. And having a guy who can shoot the lights out like he can and also play at a level defensively that is completely a product of his effort and the amount of care 
and really love for the game that he puts in, it's nice to see. I'm not sure if he can be a full-time starter, but he's playing 23 minutes a game, and those 23 minutes that he's on the floor, good things tend to happen. You know, For all the players who have kind of come under fire this season for this, that, or the third, McDermott's one of the guys that I think most Knicks fans can agree has been a very pleasant surprise. I'm not going to say he's a great defender, but he's showing that he cares, and he's showing that he's willing to put the work in, and he's showing that he's willing to learn. And when you have a player like that, you have to view them as what they are, and that is a potentially valuable long-term asset. Now, with McDermott, the key is going to be developing other aspects of his game, seeing maybe if he can rebound a little more, because if you can rebound a little more, then you can play him at power forward, and that just changes basically everything that you do. But, to his credit, the underrated aspect of his game is when he's working off ball, he's not just getting open for jump shots, he's not just positioning himself along the three-point line. He does an outstanding job of getting to the rim. Baseline cuts, backdoor cuts, whatever he has to do, he's more than able to do it. And that's the kind of versatility that the Knicks have been missing from a reserve. Now, I don't know if he can be the sixth man. I don't know if he can be the guy. And, you know, in fairness, past few weeks, he's kind of struggled a bit. But yesterday showed what he's capable of. And ideally, you know, as the younger guys start to get more minutes, I'd really like to see what he can do. And I hope that he's given the chance to do it. And basically, what I'm saying is this whole team is flush with promising young talent that I think people have kind of been a little too quick to want to give up on. It's not going to happen overnight, even though we want it to. We're not a team with a perfect equation and a perfect combination of assets and a perfect balance of what does and doesn't work. All I'm saying is there is young and promising talent on this team that the Knicks would be kind of foolish to just give up on because it's not working out this season when, quite frankly, nobody really thought this team was going to make the playoffs. And now, well, they're only, what, two, three games back of the eight seed? This isn't a terrible place to be with half of the season remaining. If anything, you can take something away from this. People keep going, well, what's the difference? It's basically the same record as the past two years. It's basically the same record. Oh, they're the same team. They're not the same team because you know the difference between this team and the teams from the past two years is if this team makes the playoffs, you still have a team that can come back next year and the players on that team, the individual players on that team are probably going to be better than they were the year before. With all due respect, to guys like Carmelo Anthony and the other veterans that really the laundry list of veterans, they weren't really going to be better the next year that they came back. They might come back a little hungrier and they might try a little harder on defense and that'll be great and that should have led to more wins, but they were at a point in their careers where in terms of their skill set, they kind of were who they were. The Knicks have a bunch of guys who are still trying to figure out who they are, and they're already basically as good as that team of veterans. That's how we need to be looking at this. That we traded our franchise player. That we parted ways with a former MVP. That we got rid of all these other veterans, brought in these younger players, and despite all of the, the massive roster overhaul that has been done, 
despite all of that, they're still as good as that team was. That's how we have to look at this. We can't keep sitting here and finding reasons to break down the Knicks and go, no, you know, this is why they're going to fail. I get it. When you see them win enough games and when you see them at 17, at 17 and 14 and when you haven't been to the playoffs in what's going on five years, it's hard to just stay a little impartial. It's hard to not let your emotions creep in. But the reality is this team is in a better position than any Knicks team has been in in about seven or eight years. And I would dare say a lot longer than that. Because this team actually has long-term assets on team-friendly contracts. This team actually has developable young players who have upside instead of just being who they are. And hopefully, those players who are who they are can find a way to make it work. No. This team actually has time to grow together. There isn't a closing window. The window hasn't even opened yet. There are so many reasons for optimism, but all we want to do is break down this team and go, this is why this person should be fired, and this is why this person should be cut or traded, and this is why we should have signed or drafted him. We have who we have. At this point, you can't change who could have been signed. You can't change who could have been drafted, and you can't change who should have been hired. If you want to fire Jeff Hornacek, if you want to trade Frank Nelikna, if you want to build a time machine and go back and get Dennis Smith Jr., well, let me know when you build it because there are a lot more important things to do. All I'm saying is give this team time. 40-something games and you're already prepared to say that somebody can't be a franchise player or a coach can't make the improvements in games that he's shown capable he's proven capable of doing but hasn't done enough for your liking you're thinking that people can't improve at this stage it's been 40 something games and we're ready to act like these players and coaches and everybody are finished products they don't even know what the product is yet they're still figuring that out, and they're already this good. I'm not being optimistic, I'm being realistic. Frank Nelikin is 19 years old, and people are going, oh, see, he's a bust. A bust? He's 19 years old. Three years from now, he's still going to be 22. Christoph Porzingis is 22 years old, about 40 games in terms of the games he's played, into being a number one scoring option, and he's already helped this team win 20 of 44 games is 20 and 24 a great record no it's not a great record but you know what it is i'll tell you what it is it's a whole lot better than anybody thought they would be kp is a guy who's struggling offensively and still still is the single best rim protector in the nba think about that he's not letting his offense control how much effort he puts in on defense if that's not progress i don't know what the hell is